0: You are listening to the One Hope Church podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. You can be seated. Well, good evening. I'm John Baxter. I'm uh, an elder here. For some of you who don't know uh, who I am. It's my uh, privilege tonight to open the Word of God for us. Now, this is uh, the Sunday after uh, Christmas, the beginning of the year. Um, this actually starts the 49th year that my wife and I have been in full-time ministry. For many of those years, uh, I was an associate pastor, and so I'm very accustomed to being here at this spot because almost always the senior pastor would take vacation after Christmas. And so that Sunday after Christmas is sort of like the associate pastor's time to preach. <laughs> now, I'm not Justin's associate, but, uh, but I'm very comfortable being in, in, in this spot. Why don't we uh, uh, turn to our Lord Jesus and ask not only for his comfort, but his presence with us here tonight as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to look into your word. Thank you for this church family that we can look into it together. And we pray, we do pray for your presence here and your enlightenment. And that you would use your word to change our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is the the first Sunday of of the new year. And traditionally, people reflect back on what happened during the past year. But they also begin to think about what's going to happen uh, in the coming year, this will be an interesting year for Jan and I. This is the year that we'll actually end our full time ministry at the end of this year. Next uh, December, we'll be moving towards retirement. So that, that means a whole new set of experiences uh, lie in the future for us. Some I'm sure will be joyful, some will be great, some probably won't be so happy, some will be uh, challenging and difficult. You know, it was last year right around this time that we received word that a very dear friend, actually he had been an elder uh, in the churches that I pastored, Jack is his name, that he had a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And this came right after an incredible high for him. He had actually won uh, an NCAA championship years ago, back when he was at the University of Colorado in men's gymnastics. And that fall... Uh, they had invited him to, uh, to be presented at the halftime of a Colorado football game as a new entry into the Sports Hall of Fame for the University of Colorado. So after a successful career in business and retirement, now he's being recognized as being a, you know, an excellent athlete in this past. It's hard to imagine that he, he could have been at a, at a greater high. And then just a few weeks later, he receives a diagnosis, which is really a death sentence. Pancreatic cancer. Very few people survive pancreatic cancer. And I'm sure that that in the confusion and and all the ambiguity that was going through Jack's mind, I don't have to uh, speculate about it because we were in conversations. There were many things Jack wanted to know. Why was he now in this difficulty? Why, after such a great high, had he been brought to such a low And there may be things that you're experiencing right now. Without doubt, there are going to be things in the future where you're going to be asking the same sorts of questions. You're going to be be wanting to know, what is it that we want to know in a difficult time? What should I be be knowing? What should I be doing? What should I be experiencing? Well, in, in answering that question, what do we want to know in a difficult time? If we look at at our experience over the years, we we tend to want to really move in in, in two directions. The first is we want to find causes, don't we? What what caused this thing to happen? And hopefully if we find some causes, then we might actually begin to understand some solutions. You know, there are many areas in life in which that's a very appropriate thing to do. You know, that's what science is all about. What causes uh, this disease, uh, what 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 causes a, a, a vehicle to run more efficiently. And so we have many places in life where, where it's completely legitimate. It's wise to seek causes and to find solutions. But, you know, that's really a limited sphere. There are many, many things in life we just simply can't determine the causes. And yet we want to know them, don't we? We want to be able to say, well, this happened because, because of this. And if I hadn't done this then then I wouldn't be where I am. And we seek for these sorts of of understanding of causes and possible solutions because deep down we want we want to control. and there's in a sense though in which that can create an illusion of control, particularly when we're dealing with people. We think if I could just have said this or if I just acted this way, if I just you know, uh, done this thing, then they would not have reacted that way. They would, have, they would have gone the way that I wanted. Things would have happened the way I wanted. And when we begin to think like that, when we begin to think that, that we actually can somehow control others, we begin to manipulate, don't we? We begin to, to plot out how we're going to relate to these people so we can get them to do the things that we want them to do. But that in itself is still illusionary. And so it leads to a, a cycle of frustration because we really can't control other people. There's so much in life that we, we simply don't understand, we simply don't control. And, and it leads to a, a, a cycle of, of, of wanting control and then in disappointment and anger and continuing manipulation when well, we don't get that control. And that's something I've experienced in my own life. Because I'm afraid of those things that I don't control if they lead to difficulty or pain or disappointment. The second common movement when when we face difficulty that we don't really understand, we don't know why we're there, is that we can move towards judgment. Someone's at fault for this. I I shouldn't be experiencing this. Someone needs to, to pay for this. You know, in my own lifetime, I've seen just an explosion of medical malpractice suits. That when um, the doctor that delivered our last child, Eleanor, he told us that he was retiring from delivering babies, but he had to continue to practice for another five years to cover his medical malpractice insurance, because he could be sued for five years, even after the last baby was born. And there's been, in my lifetime, just an explosion of people suing doctors because they, they, there's just an illusion that somehow the doctor should be able to control, he should be able to heal, he should be in charge, he's the, he's the professional. Particularly when people have abandoned a belief in God, they have to place their trust somewhere. So perhaps the doctor, and if he, if he disappoints, if he lets us down, then there's anger and there's this desire for judgment. Desire for someone to pay. It's as if we were saying to God, somehow the the, the reality of the fall of mankind should not apply to me. It shouldn't apply to me. I should not have to go through pain and difficulty. Someone must be at fault. So when we face difficulty, when we face times of, of pain, of confusion... We want to know, but we often want to know things that we really can't know. We want to know ultimate causes, we want to know solutions, we want to know who's at fault. And it traps us, it enslaves us in this, 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 this cycle of disappointment, manipulation, anger, and being judgmental. I think, though, that we can find solutions, we can find actually what it is that we need to know from God's word. And this evening, I want to invite us to look at the experience of the early church in the book of Acts to see if they can help us determine what it is that we need to know when we're experiencing times of difficulty. And I'd like for you to look, first of all, at Acts 1.8. I'm going to read it to you. It should be up on the screen. There it is. The book of Acts in, in the eighth chapter, the first or the eighth verse of the first chapter says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that the book of Acts written by Luke continues the story of what Jesus was doing in the Gospels. But now, of course, he's been crucified, buried, resurrected. And at the beginning in the first chapter of Acts, ascended into heaven. But before he ascends into heaven, he makes this promise to the apostles. He tells them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're you're clothed with power. And then he says, but you will receive that power. You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, the local city, Judea, the province, Samaria, the next province up across cultural places. Samarians weren't Jews and then ultimately into the Gentile world and beyond the ends of the earth. And this verse, in a sense, is the introductory of two great themes that run through the book of Acts, two themes in Acts. The first is that that the Holy Spirit introduces or, or inaugurates or brings us into what we could call the age of the Spirit, that God's power through the Holy Spirit, God's leading through the Holy Spirit will be present. But what's so amazing, it's not just present for a select few prophets or leaders or priests, but it'll be present for every believer. There's a democratization of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and, 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 uh, and little tongues of fire is what's manifested, and they begin to speak in tongues that in languages that aren't their own, and a crowd gathers, and and some in the crowd say, "Oh, look, they must be drunk on wine." But Peter stands up and he says, "No, this isn't wine." He says, "You need to understand this is the Spirit," and he quotes from the from the book of Joel, the prophet of Joel in the Old Testament. And, and, which, and Joel says that, that the believers, the, the young people and the maidens, they'll be dreaming dreams, they'll be prophesying that God's Spirit will be given to all of God's people. And so this is the first great theme that we'll see runs again and again and again throughout the chapters of Acts, that what happens, even though it's called the Acts of the Apostles, it could just as accurately be described as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What the work of the Holy Spirit is doing in the early church and in the world. But the second great theme that Acts 1-8 introduces is, is the theme of the dispersion of the gospel. Jerusalem, that's where the early church was, where Jesus was crucified and buried. It's where he's resurrected and where he ascends to heaven. And the church starts there, and they to to begin to be his witnesses to tell others what Jesus has done in the city of Jerusalem, but then also in the surrounding community, the community of the Jews, Judea. And then it's Samaria, which was nearby, geographically close, but, but culturally distant. The Samaritans were of a different race, had a very different sort of religion than the Jews. And then finally to the ends of the earth. And we see that progression actually happen in the book of Acts. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and all the way at the end of the book of Acts to Rome, which represents, of course, the great Roman Empire and the Gentile world that they knew at the time. And it starts off very, very well that in in the second chapter of Acts, when Peter's preaching, thousands come to Christ, 5,000. A few days later, he's going to preach again, and 3,000 will come to Christ. And the church is growing, and we're told that they, they were held in favor by the people of Jerusalem. And God was adding to their numbers every day. And so this promise seems to be going very, very, very well until there's an unexpected setback. And we want to look at that setback and the church's response. And we see it in two passages. First in Acts 8. Acts 8 verses 1 through 5, and I'll read those for us. It says that on that day... And this is the day that Stephen was stoned. Stephen was one of the leaders. He wasn't an apostle, called a deacon, a servant in the church. He was a very powerful preacher. And he was stoned for his faith by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city, Samaria, and proclaimed Messiah there. So the church is scattered. This was unexpected, unlooked for, and certainly unwanted. A difficult time. People were being thrown into prison. Saul had been, or uh, Stephen had been had been murdered. So the church is, is thrown into confusion, and it's scattered. But it's scattered, as you read, throughout Judea. Apparently, they hadn't been going very far outside of Jerusalem, and now they're, they're pushed, in a sense, in Judea. Philip goes to Samaria, where he begins to proclaim the gospel, and the Samaritans come to Christ. But we read later on in Acts 11... Verses 19 through 21. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. You know, Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean. And Antioch is up in, in what would we call modern Syria, but close to the coast, and a very important Roman city. They went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So they continue to go to the synagogues and tell fellow Jews about Jesus the Messiah. But in verse 20, something changes. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Now, Peter in chapter 10 of Acts had spoken to Cornelius, a Roman centurion there in Jerusalem. But this is the first time that normal, regular, everyday believers began to talk to people who weren't Jews. Speaking to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So this was an unexpected setback. Stephen was stoned, one of their most important leaders. There was an organized persecution under Saul, who later would become the Apostle Paul after his dramatic conversion in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. But it was an organized, systematic. He had letters from the governments to go after these believers in Jesus Christ and to throw them into jail. And because of that, the church was just scattered, dispersed, in disarray. So what did the church know in that time? How did they react to what was happening? In this unexpected difficulty. Well from their actions. From what we read in the book of Acts. This is what they knew. They knew that God's spirit was at work among them. Jesus had promised it in the first chapter. You shall receive power. Joel's promise from the Old Testament prophet was true. That the Holy Spirit would now reside in the everyday believer. And they knew that God's spirit was still at work. And they knew they were to be Jesus' witnesses. Didn't matter if it was in Jerusalem or in Cyprus or in Antioch. They knew that they had been commissioned to be his witnesses. So we see that Philip goes to Samaria. He's driven out of Jerusalem. He's now in Samaria. He begins to talk to the Samaritans. The believers are pushed all the way up into Antioch they began to gossip about Jesus, not just with fellow Jews, but for the first time with Gentiles, non-Jews, just ordinary people, just people like you and I, but convinced that God was at work among them through his Holy Spirit and that they were to be witnesses for Christ. And the result, the result actually is the salvation of the world. In verse 1 of chapter 13, we see that, that this commission to go to the ends of the earth is now continued by the very church that was created out of difficulty. In verse 1 of Acts 13, it says, Now in the church at Antioch, remember that's the church that the disciples scattered from Jerusalem arrive at because of persecution and create Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Remember, Saul had been converted in the ninth chapter, and now is a member and a leader at the church at Antioch. Verse two says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit. This is the acts of the Holy Spirit. He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And that's the beginning of the great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And because of those journeys of the Apostle Paul, the gospel begins to spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And finally, as we said, the book of Acts ends with Paul standing in Rome proclaiming the gospel. And it's because of that mission of Paul to the Gentiles that was, in a sense, created and fostered and given birth by this church that grew, that came from difficulty, that came from persecution, that the gospel spread not only to the Roman Empire, but throughout the world. We are sitting here today because the believers in Jerusalem were scattered by persecution and talked to Gentiles in the city of Antioch. And from that church, they sent Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. You are here today because of that persecution of the church after the stoning of Stephen. Antioch, the Gentile church, it was the sending base. It was the spirit who selected and sent out. But they continued to be faithful witnesses, even in the time of difficulty. And their witness has led to us today. So the answer to the question is, what is it that we need to know when we face in times of difficulty? The the biblical prescription, I think, is clear. They want us to know that God's spirit is at work among us in difficult times. That sounds almost just like a truism or maybe even trite. But they experienced And the difficulty for us is when we're in the midst of that, when we don't understand what's happening and we're, we're just searching frantically for causes and people to blame and, and solutions and we're trying to manipulate our way out of it, the ability to step back and to say, God's Spirit is at work right now, right this minute, in these circumstances, God's at work in my difficult time. That's the difficult part. Not the cognitive part of just saying, oh, I agree with it, but actually experiencing it and affirming it and living it in difficulty. You know, in in our elder council, we've been more than once remarking, it's interesting that last year we prayed for 150 days that God would bring revival, first of all, to our congregation and move us out of the YMCA. And it didn't look like much was happening. <laughs> and then lo and behold, we are out of the YMCA. And, you know, I think more than just being out of the YMCA, I think God, in a sense, like the church in Jerusalem, in a sense, has, has scattered us, has pushed us out of our comfort zone so that he might begin to work among us in a new and a refreshing and in a different way. Yes, right in the midst of a time of ambiguity and a time of difficulty we've had, we've lost the place of worship, we've had major leadership changes. There's just a lot of unknowns for this coming year. And yet, as it was seen as an example in the book of Acts, that's exactly the place where God wants to work, where God has the ability to shake us out of our old patterns and to cause us or give us the opportunity to hold on to him by faith. I don't know where we're headed as a church body. The results are, are for us are unknown. Often they are unknown while we're right in the midst of it. But I know that God wants us to affirm that he is at work among us through his Holy Spirit in difficult times resulting in us being faithful witnesses. Now, years ago, when I was a young believer, and this is way back in the, in the 70s, a very well-known theologian named J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God. It's still available, and I still highly recommend that you spend time reading it. J.I. Packer's Knowing God. But he has a wonderful story in there and a chapter called God's Knowledge and Ours. Oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I stole it from the title of this time together. But I sold it because it's so appropriate. In that chapter, he gives a story. He asked, what sort of knowledge does God have? What sort of knowledge are we supposed to have as we experience all these different joys and sorrows of life? And he said, here's, here's maybe an analogy that will help. Now, back in his time in England, and I've been in England, and I and I love to take the trains in England. It's the best way to get around. But that's what people normally, uh, the normal transportation for many... In, in England is the trains and he said you can imagine that you're in a large train yard with many different trains you know and they're all gonna come down to just a few tracks and some are off on the side some are moving ahead some are coming in some are being stopped but he said in that train yard up in a tower somewhere there's a controller and he can see everything that's happening in that train yard. he knows why some are pushed over to the side he knows why some have to be delayed. He knows why some have to be sped up. And he's able, in a sense, to control what's going on. He said that's, that's the knowledge of the controller. That's the knowledge that God has. He sees all of history, the beginning to the end. And, and with that, seeing is his ability to control. He's sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. He is actually in charge of the good times we experience, and of the difficult times that we experience. He's not only in control, but he's the one who has the right to evaluate. He is the one who has the right to judge. He's the one to decide if our actions are in conformity with his will and with his character or not. And we're mistaken when we want to take that sort of knowledge upon ourselves. The knowledge to control, the knowledge to judge We have to ask ourselves, are we really big enough to do that? Do you you really have the ability to control the world? Are you really that righteous that you can sit in judgment? And it only leads to disappointment and frustration when we mistakenly think that we can control. We can have this illusion of control or that we can assign fault and judgment. Packard goes on to that story, he says, But also in the train yard, not only is there the controller, but there's the passenger, the one who's sitting in the train. And that's us. We're the passengers in this life. He says the passenger doesn't know that this train has to be pulled over to the side because there's another train approaching. There would be a terrible wreck. He he doesn't know why this train has to go at a certain speed. He doesn't know all of the things that the controller knows. But what he does need to know, he needs to know that there's a controller. That the trains aren't just randomly moving, but there's a pattern and a reason behind it, even though they can't see it. But most importantly, they need to know patience, and they need to know trust. They're not in control. Things aren't going to move exactly the way they want. So the, 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 the knowledge that they have to cultivate, the, the virtue that they have to cultivate is patience. Patience built on a trust. That the Holy Spirit really is at work in this moment. Even though I don't see it, I don't feel it. But I need to develop these virtues of patience and trust. What does that mean for us? It it means that we have to let go of control. It means that we have to, to let go of trying to manipulate everything to fit how we want it to fit. But in that, when we let go of this illusion of control and we, and we cease to manipulate, we also let go of fear. We let go of, of just disappointment and frustration with God and with others. And we can let go of having to judge others because they disappointed us or they let us down. And it breaks that vicious cycle. That's what we need to know. We need to know we're the passenger, God is the controller, our job is to develop patience and trust and trust in continuing to do what is good what god has asked us to do what he's called us to do in the time of difficulty you know we visited my friend jack this fall because he's very dear to us and we expected just bad news <laughs> but when we got there he lives out in montana Jack told us that he was in a a sort of miraculous and wonderful time of remission, which is very rare for pancreatic cancer. And the doctors were saying, we don't really see a whole lot that's wrong with you at this moment. Now that could change tomorrow. We could get an email. We could get a text tonight saying the cancer has come back. Jack doesn't know what the future is. He doesn't believe that he's in control of his future. He's not seeking to somehow manipulate God and and to giving him the future that he demands. He's not angry at God because it wasn't the future he thought. Actually, Jack reports to us that his spiritual life has never been stronger, fuller, or more full of joy because he was willing to develop those virtues of patience and trust and continuing to do what God has asked him to do even when circumstances weren't exactly what he wanted. I don't know what's going to be happening in your life this year. I don't know what's going to be happening to one hope this year. But I know two things. God's at work among us in the community through his Holy Spirit. And I know that he wants us to continue to trust him and to be his witnesses, to believe in him. And to commit ourselves to him. What would that look like for you right now? Is there something in your life right now that that there's just a deep disappointment with God about? Things have not gone the way that you expected them to go. And and if you're honest and you reflect, you're, you're seeking for some sort of control over it. And maybe there's even anger or fear when you're not achieving this level of control. What would you need to do tonight to break that cycle? What would you need to say to Jesus tonight to affirm that he's at work through his spirit right now in this difficulty? Let's take a second and let's say those things to him. Let's pray. just in the silence, if there is a difficulty, a disappointment, an anger, if you're holding someone in judgment, can you say to God, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to let go of my just poor efforts of control. I want to release them to you. I want to affirm that your spirit is at work in difficult situations. Can you also say that that you will embrace these virtues of patience and trust and that you will commit yourself to developing the spiritual foundation, the renewal of your mind through scripture, prayer, worship, through this community, To have that mindset become your mindset. Can you give whatever it is right now to Jesus? Lord, I thank you for the example of the church in the book of Acts. Who stood on your promise that your Holy Spirit was among them and with them. Who, even in the face of persecution and death and imprisonment and exile, continued to trust you, have patience in you, with the result that your salvation spread throughout the world. Lord, will you do the same here with one hope? Will you work among us this coming year in both our joys? and our disappointments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.